How could anything but the dog be the saddest thing? I mean, people, they die in shipwrecks all the time and they get eaten. But the dog, <laughs> the poor spaniel. Yeah, that's because dogs. Dogs. Right. Well, and re you remember Boson, right? Byron's dog. His dog was dead. Yeah. I almost got into an amazing flame war on Wikipedia, which I eventually gave up on, um, in their list of fictional dogs, um, which used to be a great list, which I actually put a lot of fictional dogs on, but then some puritanical um, editors, co-editors, other editors, decided that they weren't notable, even though lists don't have to have notable items in Wikipedia. I'm sure you guys, have any of you been in Wikipedia flame wars? No, okay. Well, they have a criterion of notability, so which is why you can't just write your own entry, like me, because I'm me. Um, you have to be notable in the world. Um, so they decided there were a lot of non-notable dogs on this list, even though they were like in Byron, who was notable. So I, I really wasted a lot of time on that. <laughs> um, but the Spaniel was on it once. Now he's gone. Now it's only boring, very, very well-known dogs like Buck from Call of the Wild. So there you go. All right. Um, what else did we feel about this? Yeah. I, just, I, mean, I love the entire sweet love story. Mm -hmm. But I just don't like the fact that he totally forgot about Julia. Like, it was just like, you know, one canto, it was all about Julia. And then, like, canto two, it's like, oh, um, no. Yeah. I just thought it was... And he even talks about that at the end. Yeah. That is, and what about Julia? Well, um, and then what does he talk about after he brings up Julia? He does something that, he, Byron, does something that he, Byron, does, which is he mentions Julia and says, you know, what about poor Julia? Um, Julian is now completely into um, Haiti or Haiti, depending on where in the line it is. Sometimes you have to pronounce it Haiti and sometimes Haiti. Um, and, um, but then Julia, what about her? And, um, what does he do then? He brings her up and then where does he go? Does he talk about her? Do we find out what she's doing? Where, we last saw her where? In a nunnery. In a nunnery. And she writes Julian a letter. What happens to that letter, by the way? It gets eaten. Sorry? It gets eaten. Well, it actually gets used for lots to see who's going to be killed first. Um, so they're on the boat and they have to, they, they have to draw lots and um, who's the loser? Pedrillo, yeah. Uh, not Pedrillo, but Pedrillo because it rhymes with, come on, work with me here. You can rhyme. Come up with a word that rhymes with Pedrillo. Two syllables. If you're sleepy, you might put your head on it. All right, good. <laughs> and it's also something that oceans can do. They can billow. And um, people can um, spend their lunchtime on a hot summer's day under a weeping. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don Juan will teach you to rhyme. Do you feel like you're rhyming more as you read it? Are your dreams rhyming at all? No. Not at all, really? You're not reading enough. They will. They will. They should. Sorry? Do you really? Yeah. Like I'll just be walking here and just, I happen to, I don't know why, for 
Yeah. Yeah, well, Byron certainly happens to rhyme. That's what he does, is he rhymes. He sees stuff and he rhymes it. He sees something and he says, I'm going to rhyme that. And he does. And um, part of what is, I mean, we talked about this, but, but you should be getting more of a feeling about this, is that the digressiveness of Don Juan, which gets more digressive as you go onward, um, you know, it's, it's all great. You should read the whole thing. But if we read the whole thing, we wouldn't have time to read anyone else. Um, it's basically... Um, it was originally going to have a shape and go somewhere, but then it just be, it was so popular and so wonderful that Byron realized he could write about anything that he wanted by starting a story about Don Juan and then starting to digress on something um, and just talk about anything that some chain of association would connect to Don Juan. And then he'll say something, as he does in um, Canto too, like, but where were we? I think we were at the sea. Let me see. yes, the sea, and go get right back into the story whenever he wants to. So he's completely um, loose about um, and centrifugal about where he's going to go with Don Juan. And in a way, that's great because it means you can rhyme anything with anything. That is, I mean, that, that it's the nature of rhyme in languages with rhyming poetry, which are not every, not every language has rhyming poetry. Um, and the reason for that is in some languages it's too hard to rhyme and in some languages it's too easy to rhyme. Um, if it's too easy to rhyme, there's just no interest in writing poetry that rhymes. Um, in Japanese, for example, it's very easy to rhyme and Japanese poetry doesn't tend to rhyme very much. It's syllabic. Um, in Greek, it's very easy to rhyme and there's almost, no, in, at least in ancient Greek, I don't know about modern Greek, but in ancient Greek there's almost no rhymed poetry and it's regarded as silly. Rhymed poetry is regarded as silly. Um, the word barbarian, did we talk about this in this class, about the word barbarian? The word barbarian is a Greek word for those who seem to be um, just producing rhymes all the time. That is, the barbarians come from the north and it's actually what we would, in modern English, we would say they're blah blah beans. I don't understand what they're saying. They're just blah, 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 blah all the time. So for Greek, it was they're just bar, 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 bar all the time. Um, and um, Greek style avoided rhyme. It was hard to avoid rhyme because so many sounds were similar in Greek. Um, the way you say of this man, for example, you know, this man's, this man's world, um, the phrase this man is... Two, 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 anthropu. So um, all those oohs are right there, and that sounds terrible to a Greek ear, to an ancient Greek ear. So they work hard to avoid rhyming. English is a language, and Italian is a language, where rhymes are um, fairly plentiful, Italian more than English, but where rhymes are fairly plentiful, um, but not so plentiful that you can rhyme inadvertently very often. You know, the um, I'm a poet and I don't know it joke is partly a joke because sometimes people rhyme by accident. Um, but generally, you have to want to rhyme in English. But if you want to rhyme, you usually can figure out a way to rhyme. And so Byron um, is always on the hunt for ways to rhyme. And in a way, that's the way he's looking at the world. You can just feel that that's how he's looking at the world. Um, that he sees something and he realizes, you know, well, I've just been writing about the poor and now someone's come through my door and I can say something about that. Um, and so it's like he's looking at objects and thinking what can rhyme with what. 
and then how he can get from one to the other, which is by digressing. Um, so he digresses all the time. And therefore, Don Juan becomes more and more, as you read through more and more of it, um, it becomes um, a way that Byron has of journaling, but it's, it's more than a journal, but of transmuting everything that's going on in politics, in his own life, in um, historical circumstances, into um, an account that he can just put in this Ottava Rima. And we talked a little bit about the triple lines of Ottava Rima. Remember, it rhymes A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C. Um, did you feel that the cannibalism part, did that strike you? I mean, it's very powerful. Partly it's powerful because it's very occasionally comic with really, really grim black humor, um, but mainly not comic. Did you guys feel that? That it, it, was, it, was, it really is powerful, and it doesn't feel funny. And you may find yourself laughing, but laughing at the horror rather than laughing at um, the good joke that's coming there. So occasionally he'll throw in a good joke, um, like the de- like rhyming um, Pedrillo with Billow. Um, but generally, the um, description of the of all those days at sea and the desperation of the people at sea and, and their thirst and their hunger and their cannibalism and the weather not changing, all of that becomes more and more intense. Um, and it becomes really, really intense, even though he's rhyming in the same stanzaic form that he's making his funniest jokes with. And um, what you could say is, now we can say a little bit more about that form which Byron is so good at. Partly I want to talk about it because Shelley will use it very differently. Um, he will also write Notava Rima, as you will see. Um, <coughs> but partly what that form makes possible is an option, you could say, on the third A or the third B rhyme, that is, or even on the two C rhymes. The first, the first four lines of the stanza form a kind of quatrain. And that's a standard way to write poetry in a quatrain. And you see things. And if you recall, do you remember the, how um, Don Juan stanza one, I mean, canto one ends, the very end of canto one? So what is it? Yeah, um, so that's the last four lines. But <coughs> here's the whole canto. Four beautiful lines. Go, little book, from this my solitude. Do you guys know what the go, little book trope is? Is that something that you've ever seen or heard before? <coughs> so it's a way of ending a poem that goes way, way back. If you've, Has anyone taken Chaucer? Um, you should, really. Just saying. Um... Chaucer is unbelievably great, and he's unbelievably great in a way that you don't want to say, okay, he's unbelievably great, but life is short, and you have to dispense with some unbelievably great people, and Chaucer is the one for me. Um, No, take Chaucer when you get a chance. Um, Chaucer has a poem, a great poem, which is very influential on Shakespeare, called Troilus and Crusade, um, which in more modern English is Troilus and Cressida who are um, two figures from the Trojan War, from the Iliad. Um, Troilus being a Trojan brother of Hector's and 
Cressida being a Trojan woman. If you've read the Iliad, she's um, her name is usually trans transliterated now as Chryseis, but in um, older English, it was Cressida. So um, Chaucer tells the story of Troilus and Crusade, and Crusade's uncle Pander, which is where we get the word to pander. Um, that is to to act as a kind of um, brown nosing go between in order to make things happen because that's what he does. Um, so um, he's also a character in the Shakespeare play, but we get the word as Shakespeare did from Chaucer. Um, at the very end of Troilus and Crusade, there's the last stanza. Is um, Chaucer says addresses his own book and he says, "Go little book." I can't do it in Middle English well. But it's go little book or boka, go little mean tragedia. So go little book, go my little tragedy. Um, present yourself to the world, and I hope you have success. And that address to your own poem in what's called an envoy, where an envoy means a send off, um, like an ambassador is an envoy. He's someone or she is someone you send. So in poetry, that's called an envoy a send-off where you say farewell to your own book um, and wish it luck in the world because it's as though you are a parent sending it, sending it away. So that's a, you should just know that. Um, if you learned it from Byron, that's fine. You should just know that there is this, this lovely little um, concluding moment that some poets and some poems will use, which is to say, go little book. Um, Shelley will do something similar in a poem of his, we're not going to read Epipsychidion, where he addresses his verses to this woman that he's in love with, and he tells them to lay themselves at her feet um, in hopes that um, she will read them and take pity on him. Um, if you, has any, does anyone take creative writing, poetry writing? Um, do you know what a Sistina is? So a Sistina has, as its last three lines, something called an envoy, which is a Sistina is a 39-line poem with six six-line stanzas and then a final three-line stanza, which isn't actually a farewell to the poem, but it feels like one because it's a short stanza at the end, and so that's called an envoy as well. Yeah. Yes. Right, yeah. Ye Goat Herd Gods was the one that we looked at um, by Philip Sidney. Um, so, which is, which is the first Sistina in English. Yeah, good. So it takes, see, teaching, learning. It's great. Um, so here we have an envoy at the end of Canto I, which is first published by itself. Um, as you know, at the end of Canto I, he says, if the public likes this, then I'll have Canto II for them in about a year. Um, and there's going to be a view of hell and all sorts of other um, things. That'll be good. Um, and now he says, Go, little book, from this my solitude. I cast thee on the waters. Go thy ways. And if, as I believe, thy vein be good, that is, if um, you're like gold, um, a vein of gold within a rock, and if, as I believe, thy vein be good, the world will find thee after many days. So he's casting the book upon the waters the way you cast your bread upon the waters, saying farewell to his book, hoping that it will be found by the world. Um, he thinks it's good, but he's not sure. So there's that quatrain. And then 
When Southey's read and Wordsworth understood, I can't help putting in my claim to praise. So if people like Southey and Wordsworth, I feel like I at least have a right to hope that people will read me. I mean, the competition, the successful competition, come on, what are we talking about here? Um, and then he tells us, the first four rhymes are Southey's every line. For God's sake, reader, take them not for mine. So what we find is that the Go Little Book quatrain, he's simply quoting Southey. Um, now, Southey wrote a quatrain. He wasn't writing an ottava rima. He wrote a quatrain. That was the end of his poem. Um, that was that. But what Byron does is he takes what Southey meant. You know, it's not a bad quatrain. Um, there's a little bit of too much of a mixed metaphor there. That is, um, I'm going to cast my book on the water with a vein of gold in it where it will be found by the world. If you, if you push it too hard, you're going to think, well, if it's got a vein of gold, it's actually going to sink. Um, it's not like casting bread on the waters, and bread isn't like a book anyhow, and it's not like a message in a bottle. So there's something a little off, <coughs> but Southey is kind of capped, enraptured by the music of his own verse. Um, and he just loves being able to say, go, little book, from this my solitude. That's a good line. Um, so the music of that enraptures him. Byron quotes it. Um, you might think for a second, okay, that's Byron being serious, but he gets past the quatrain. So Southey has A, B, A, B rhyme, and then Byron says, now I'm going to add another A. When Southey's read in words where it's understood, so that rhymes with solitude and good. Um, when Southey's read in words where it's understood, and then I'm going to give another B rhyme. I can't help putting in my claim to praise. And then it's all, the first four lines are Southey's, the last four lines are mine. Um, so what happens is you get a quatrain, which is how lots of readers of English poetry think when they read poems, is to think in quatrains. A quatrain is a really good length for a thought, for a stanza, for saying something. Ballad stanzas tend to be in quatrains. Um, story poems tend to be written in quatrains. As, we, as, as I mentioned before, Shakespeare's sonnets are three quatrains followed by a couplet, um, twelve, um, 14 lines instead of eight. Um, so <coughs> what you get in Byron in Ottava Rima is something whose first half feels, conventional would be the wrong word, but familiar, a quatrain. And then you get two more rhymes with the rhymes from the quatrain. And those two rhymes, really, they're a junction. In every stanza, they provide a junction that can go in any direction. So he can give you two more lines which completely stay in the same tone as the quatrain. Or he can shift direction a little bit. Or he can totally undercut the quatrain, as he does here. And there's always that cross into the next two lines, which are like a lever or a crowbar, which are going to move the quatrain that precedes them in one direction or another. And then there are a final two lines which can sum up what's happened. And so that just gives Byron enormous flexibility for the tone of his poem. And that flexibility means that 
he can write about anything. He does write about anything. You saw he didn't in Child Harold. He didn't until he started writing Don Juan. Yeah, he had funny poems. He wrote funny poems before Don Juan, lots of them. And he wrote serious poems before Don Juan. You read some of them, like the last two cantos of Child Harold. Um, but in Don Juan, he can do whatever he wants, and he can shift gears whenever he wants. And it's a pretty amazing thing, the way he can do that. So Julia's in a nunnery. Juan is weeping over her letter. Um, he packs it up with him. Let's just, let's just do the plot a little bit. Then what happens? What does his mother decide? Yeah. Yeah, to send him to Italy to, to cast him upon the waters um, because he's misbehaved so much. And what does she do, by the way? Doesn't she start like a school? She starts a little school, yeah, because she's so good at bringing children up. Um, so that's Byron's point. She starts a little school, onto the boat he goes, and what's the first thing that happens when they get on board, <coughs> on board the boat? Seasickness. Um, really, really awful seasickness. Um, so again, you can get a sense. I actually want us to look some more at the end of Canto One, but you can get a sense of um, how things change under the pressure of the real world. So that's, I think, the best way to understand what Ottava Rima gives Byron. Um, it's, how he, it's what he's going to talk about at the end of Canto too, as well. But if you look at, for example, stanza 15. And that, let's start a little bit earlier. Stanza 11 of Canto too. Um, Juan embarked. The ship got underway. The wind was fair. The water passing rough. Um, do people know what the word passing means there? Actually not. We tend to think it means a little. It's a Shakespearean word, and um, it's actually surpassing with the sur elided. Um, so it means really rough. Um, and it tends sometimes to start meaning, you know, rough enough, um, but technically passing. Um, it's a word from Othello. Um, Othello quotes Desdemona. Do you remember? Passing strange, actually. She said, "'Twas strange, was, twas passing strange, twas pitiful, twas wondrous pitiful." Um, so yeah, it means really rough. Um, a devil of a sea rolls in that bay. That's how you know it's really rough. So now again, you, you've, you've been corrected in a standard uh, misinterpretation of an English word, um, which is good. School. Um, so, a devil of a sea rolls in that bay. As I, who crossed it oft, know well enough. Um, is the writer of this, the narrator, English, by the way? We kind of, we're, remember what we're entitled to think about the narrator in the preface? He might either be what or what? Remember when he's parroting Wordsworth's The Thorn in the prose preface to Don Juan? The backstory? You got, did you guys read it? Actually, you know, um, <coughs> do you know who Dan Perlman is? Um, so he has a thing that he does, which, is, which, which I think is great, which is he'll turn his back on a class and say, so if you read it, cough. And then if you didn't read it, cough, so he won't know who's read it and who hasn't. Um, but he'll be able to get to see. So um, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm not going to cheat. 
So those of you who read it, the preface, the prose preface, I really am going to close my eyes, cough. <laughs> okay. So let's look at the prose preface then. This is um, at the very beginning. In a note or preface, have you guys found it? Very beginning of Tanjuan. It might be in that book, it might be in the notes. It is, okay. So in a note or preface, I forget which, by Mr. W. Wordsworth to a poem, the subject of which, as far as it is intelligible, is the remorse of an unnatural mother for the destruction of a natural child. Uh, what's a natural child? Anyone know what that term means? Yeah, it's, it's um, the, the, the less polite word is bastard. So... <coughs> She's an unnatural mother because she has destroyed her child born without a husband. And now she feels remorse. That poem is The Thorn. So in a note or preface, I forget which, by Mr. W. Wordsworth, to a poem the subject of which, as far as it is intelligible, because it's Wordsworth, I don't really know what it's about, is the remorse. What page is it? What page are you on? Um, I'm on 1042, but I'm not seeing what you're reading. Okay. Um, Maybe, maybe, um, I imagine the McGann version had it, and they didn't, in which case you have to hear it. Um, all right. Uh, no, okay, so it's not your fault that you didn't read it. In fact, had you coughed. <laughs> um... Yeah, all right. I'm done with that book. Next time I teach this course. Okay, so listen, because this is good. Um, I mean, it actually is a, a decent edition of Byron, but it's a pain that it doesn't have this. In a note or preface, I forget which, by Mr. W. Wordsworth, to a poem, the subject of which, as far as it is intelligible, is the remorse of an unnatural mother for the destruction of a natural child, the courteous reader is desired to extend his usual courtesy so far as to suppose that the narrative is narrated by, quote, the captain of a merchantman or small trading vessel lately retired upon a small annuity in some inland town, etc., etc., unquote. So Wordsworth says, imagine, Byron is quoting from memory, um, but Wordsworth says, imagine that that's who's telling the story about the woman who is feeling all this great remorse. I quote from memory, he says, but conceive the above, what he's just quoted, to be the sense, as far as there is sense, <coughs> of the note or preface to the aforesaid poem, as far as it is a poem. The poem, or production, to which I allude is that which begins with, there is a thorn, it is so old. And then the poet informs all who are willing to be informed that its age was such as to leave great difficulty in the conception of its ever having been young at all. All of this is right. There's a thorn in its soul that looks, as, it looks like it never was young or something. Um, which is as much to say either that it was coeval with the creator of all things or that it had been born old and was thus appropriately by antithesis devoted to the commemoration of a child that died young. 
The palm near it is described according to mensuration. And then he quotes an actual line from the thorn. I measured it from side to side. Tis three feet long and two feet wide. So now Wordsworth, just so you know, Wordsworth is incredibly great. And, and the thorn is a great poem. But if you quote two lines like that, I measured it from side to side, tis three feet long and two feet wide, um, Byron can be excused for thinking that's pretty, a pretty damning thing to quote. Poetry, I measured it from side to side, tis three feet long and two feet wide. That's as unbyronic as poetry can be. Let me be excused from being particular in the detail of such things, as this is the sort of writing which has superseded and degraded Pope in the eyes of the discerning British public. So he's as pissed off as people are now about the kind of poetry being written now compared to the kind of poetry being written then. And Byron is saying, look at this utter garbage that Wordsworth is writing. And to think <coughs> that people used to write like Pope, and now they write like this. This is the sort of thing. And this man is the kind of poet who, in the same manner that Joanna Southcote, who was a mystic, found many thousand people to take her dropsy for God Almighty, re-impregnated, has found many hundreds of persons to believe in his insanities and hold his art as a kind of poetical Emanuel Swedenberger, Richard Brothers, or Parson Tozer, half enthusiast and half imposter. That is, um, other, other um, charismatic figures. Um, so I'm going to skip some. Um, so now what he says about this poem is... The reader, who has acquiesced to Mr. W. Wordsworth's supposition that his misery oh, misery is related by the captain of a small, etc., is requested to suppose, so now he's making a request of you, the reader is requested to suppose, by a like exertion of imagination, that the following epic narrative, so now listen, because you need to know this, that the following epic, exert your imaginations, that the following epic narrative is told by a Spanish gentleman in a village in the Sierra Morena on the road between Monasterio and Seville, sitting at the door of a posada with the curate of the hamlet on his right hand, a cigar in his mouth, a jug of Malaga or perhaps right sherry before him on a small table containing the relics of an Ola Podrida, which I think <coughs> is a, um, a kind of porridge. The time, sunset. At some distance, a group of black-eyed peasantry are dancing to the sound of the flute of a Portuguese servant belonging to two foreign travelers who have an hour ago dismounted from their horses to spend the night on their way to the capital of Andalusia. Of these, one is attending to the story and the other, having sauntered further, is watching the beautiful movements of a tall peasant girl whose whole soul is in her eye and her heart in the dance, of which she is the magnet to 10,000 feelings that vibrate with her own. Not far off, a knot of French prisoners are contending with each other at the graded lattice of their temporary confinement for a view of the Twilight Festival. The two foremost are a couple of hussars, one of whom has a bandage on his forehead, yet stained with the blood of a saber cut received in the recent skirmish which deprived him of his law freedom. His eyes sparkle in unison and his fingers beat time against the bars of his prison to the sound of Fandango, which is fleeting before him. So it's important that you set the scene in which Don Juan is being told. Our friend, the storyteller, <laughs> at some distance with a small elderly audience, is supposed to tell his story without being much moved by the musical hilarity at the other end of the village green. 
The reader is further requested to suppose him to account for his knowledge of English, either an Englishman settled in Spain or a Spaniard who had traveled in England, perhaps one of the liberals who have subsequently been so liberally rewarded by Ferdinand of grateful memory for his restoration. So Ferdinand was cruel to them. Um, having supposed as much of this as the utter impossibility of such a supposition will admit, the reader is requested to extend his supposed power of supposing as far as to conceive <coughs> that the dedication to Mr. Southey and several stanzas of the poem itself are interpolated by the English editor. He may also imagine various causes for the tenor of the dedication. Um, so he then, he then rags on Southey for a while. Um, so <coughs> um, the point is, Suppose whatever you want about the narrator. You can have this insanely detailed and completely irrelevant picture of where he's telling this poem to some other elderly people while sitting at a table while they're French prisoners off on one side and, and, and women dancing on the other side and a knot of peasants looking at them. Um, you know, if you need to suppose all that, sure, go ahead. Um, that's important. Um, but one thing, one thing that he's saying is some of the stanzas are obviously inconsistent with other of the stanzas. And um, one thing you need to decide is, is, or you don't need to decide, but will occasionally, stanza by stanza, need to decide, is whether the storyteller is English or Spanish. Um, what does he think about English poets in Canto II? Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he says, um, this is at stanza 165. Um, he's describing how Jewin is learning Greek from Hedi um, because they don't speak a word of each other's language. So stanza, um, stanza 160, eh, let's start at 163. And now, by dint of fingers and of eyes and words repeated after her, he took a lesson in her tongue, <coughs> but by surmise, no doubt, less of her language than her look. Um, so he's learning more from what she's, the way she's looking at him than from her language. As he who studies fervently the skies turns oftener to the stars than to his book. Thus Julian learned his alpha, beta better from Hades' glance than any graven letter. So he's better at reading the, her look to him than at actually learning her language, the way someone who is trying to learn astronomy with a book and the sky will look at the sky rather than the book. Then he goes on, "'Tis pleasing to be schooled in a strange tongue by female lips and eyes. That is, I mean, when both the teacher and the taught are young, as was the case, at least where I have been. They smile, just so you know, um, the way Byron pronounced bin was bean. Um, you can still hear that in, in some British pronunciations of English. Uh, where have you been, may I ask? So that's a perfect rhyme for Byron. Um, they smile so when one's right. And when one's wrong, they smile still more. And then there intervene pressure of hands perhaps even a chaste kiss. I learned the little that I know by this. So that's how he's learned foreign languages. Um, 
And what is the little that he knows? That is, some words of Spanish, Turk, and Greek. Italian not at all, having no teachers. Much English I cannot pretend to speak, which is a hilarious thing for the narrator of Don Juan to say. Much English I cannot pretend to speak. Learning <coughs> that language chiefly from its preachers, namely Barrow, South, Tillotson, whom ev- or Tillotson, whom every week I study. Also Blair. Blair was a writer about aesthetics um, and about the sublime. He had ideas about why literature was powerful. I study also Blair, the highest reachers of eloquence and piety and prose. I hate your poets, so read none of those. So now he's a Spaniard who just doesn't really like English poetry. Uh, his English isn't very good, but he's pretty sure he, does, he, he really doesn't like English poetry. Um, <coughs> so he's always shifting in and out of um, various relations to his narration. Sometimes it seems like, and <coughs> there'll be more, much more of this later on um, in the next cantos, but even in, in Canto 2, it, sometimes it seems like he's on the boat with Juin. He talks about what happens to us, um, you know, how we were trying to deal with the broken masts and so on, and sometimes he just seems like I'm telling the story, which I happen to know, but I wasn't present at it. Sometimes he's English, sometimes he's Spanish. Um, sometimes he's neither, as here. I know a little Spanish, he says, a little English, but not so much. Um, and so he's always shifting in and out of, <coughs> of a consistent relationship to the story that he's telling. Now that inconsistency, that's what I keep harping on, is that inconsistency, because that's the digressiveness, that's the ability to go anywhere, to morph into anything in the telling of the story. Um, and that's a wonderful thing that he can do as a storyteller, is um, go into any tone, talk about anything, discuss it in any way. Um, and um, he does it pretty wonderfully. Okay, so let's go back now to Juin aboard ship. Um, this is, a, again, at the beginning of Canto Two, um, Stanza um, 11 we were on. Um, Juin embarked, the ship got underway, the wind was fair, the water passing rough, a devil of a sea rolls in that bay, as I, who cross it oft, know well enough. And standing upon deck, the dashing spray flies in one's face and makes it weather tough. And there he stood to take and take again, or again, Byron would say, his first, perhaps his last, farewell of Spain. Why would it be his last farewell? If he dies or if he never comes back, um, the way Byron never goes back to England. So Canto 12, I mean stanza 12 then, I can't but say it is an awkward sight to see one's native land receding through the growing waters. It unmans one quite, especially when life is rather new. I recollect Great Britain's coast looks white, but almost every other country's blue. When gazing on them, mystified by distance, we enter on our nautical existence. So what is he reprising there? Where has he said something like that before? (coughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, this is like a one-line summary. I'm, I won't pull it out then. But it's like a one-line summary of, of the beginning of Canto Three of Child Harold, when he says the time is gone when seeing Albion's receding shore could glad or sadden me, um, could, could, um, could, could um, pierce or glad my heart, I think those are the words. Um, he's over that. He's on to the sea once more, but he's not so young as he once was when seeing England disappear into the waters, either gave him joy or gave him sorrow. Um, so now he's summarizing that. You can see it's the same person. He, just, he talks about some of the same things. So Juan stood bewildered on the deck. The wind sung, cordage strained, and sailors swore. Um, that's funny. Um, and the ship creaked. The town became a speck from which away so fair and fast they bore. The best of remedies is a beefsteak. Um, again, probably pronounced beef stack at the time. Um, you know, that's the French pronunciation, beef stack. Um, and probably that's um, how it was pronounced in England 200 years ago. The best of remedies is a beef stack. Again, seasickness. Try it, sir, before you sneer, and I assure you this is true, for I have found an answer. <coughs> so may you. So suddenly, we're talking about seasickness. First, there's this romantic going upon the waters. And then that modulates really fast into seasickness. Um, Don Juan stood, gazing from the stern, beheld his native Spain receding far. First partings form a lesson hard to learn. Even nations feel this when they go to war. There is a sort of unexpressed concern, a kind of shock that sets one's heart ajar at leaving even the most unpleasant people and places. One keeps looking at the steeple. Um, so what's the most unpleasant place? Church, yeah. So you're leaving, you know, when, when you leave for good, or it might be for good, even if you didn't like the place and all the people there were jerks, um, still, it's kind of shocking when you're leaving forever. Um, most, unpleasant and most unpleasant people in places. Why, look, you're looking at the steeple as it disappears. So that's a nice little dig at the church. <coughs> but Jewin didn't have unpleasant things to leave. He had many things to leave. But Juan had got many things to leave. His mother and a mistress and no wife. So what's he leaving? What are the three things he's leaving? All three are in the line. And, and not having a wife, yeah. So three things that, you know, a young man would really like, um, you know, his mother to take care of him, a mistress to have sex with, and no wife. That's also a good thing, um, says Byron. So that he had much better cause to grieve than many persons more advanced in life. And if we now and then a sigh must heave, and quitting even those we quit in strife, no doubt we weep for those the heart endears, that is, till deeper griefs congeal our tears, till worse things happen. So there he is. Go to stint 17. Um, yeah, I mean. And Juan wept, and much he sighed and thought, <coughs> while his salt tears dropped into the salt sea. It's a beautiful line. While his salt tears dropped into the salt sea. Sweets to the sweet. I like so much to quote. What's he quoting? Uh-huh. Who? 
Um, it's actually Gertrude of Adophilia. Um, when, <coughs> when Ophelia is being buried. Um, so his salt tears are dropping into the salt sea, and then immediately Byron thinks, it's like sweets to the sweet. Sweets to the sweet. <coughs> I like so much to quote, you must excuse this actress, this extract. Tis where she, the queen of Denmark, for Ophelia brought flowers to the grave. So he not only quotes, but he tells you where he's quoting from. Um, and sobbing often, he reflected on his present situation and seriously resolved on reformation. Farewell, my Spain, a long farewell, he cried. Perhaps I may revisit thee no more. And he takes out Julia's letter and looks at it, which is a real mistake, on a pitching boat to start reading a letter, especially if you've never been on a boat before, as Juan hasn't. Um, and he goes on, and oh, if e'er I should forget, I swear. But that's impossible and cannot be. Sooner shall this blue ocean melt to air. Sooner shall earth resolve itself to sea. Than I resign thine image, O oh, my fair. Or think of anything excepting thee. A mind disease, no remedy can physic. Here the ship gave a lurch, and he grew seasick. Um, <coughs> so nothing will make me forget you. Well, hmm, seasickness can. <coughs> Sooner shall heaven kiss earth. Here he fell sicker. Oh, Julia, what is every other woe? For God's sake, let me have a glass of liquor. Pedro Batista, help me down below. Julia, my love. You rascal, Pedro, quicker. Oh, Julia, this cursed vessel pitches so. Beloved Julia, hear me still beseeching. Here he grew inarticulate with retching. Um, <coughs> so he starts puking. Um... You will see later on, there's another seasickness scene where Byron has, um, I'm not even going to tell you, just look for, um, it's one of the greatest lines, and rhymes in all of Don Juan is um, in another mention of seasickness that he will get to um, <coughs> later on. Um, so just notice what a great, what a great um, rhyme it is when you get there. Um, so he gets sicker, then things go bad, and then you get this amazing, um, horrific description of um, desperation on the sea. And um, he's the only one who survives. Um, what story is Byron retelling there? There's a shipwreck. Yeah. Um, from the Iliad? Or no. Well, he's certainly retelling the rhyme of the ancient mariner while the ship is, things are getting worse and worse and they're dying. In the rhyme of the ancient mariner, everyone dies of thirst. Mm -hmm. There's also a white bird that comes, the albatross, mm -hmm. as there's a white bird that comes here. But after the shipwreck, which doesn't happen in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, the ship goes, gets back to port, but the mariner's the only one who's there. Um, you almost had it. So not the Iliad, but... Sorry? The Odyssey. Yeah. And do you remember where? The shipwreck or the scene on the beach? Both. Well, I was thinking the scene on the beach. I was thinking color, though. Yeah. But the shipwreck, was that Solon Charybdis? Sorry? Solon Charybdis. Yeah, well, no, what happens is Odysseus leaves the island of Calypso. And he is then shipwrecked and about to die and barely gets washed upon the shore where Nausicaa finds him. 
Um, and that's the beginning, near the beginning of the Odyssey. That is, it's near the end of his journey back to Ithaca. But um, the first major event <coughs> that happens in the Odyssey is that he leaves the island of Calypso um, <coughs> and is shipwrecked and is cast um, barely alive onto um, the shores of the Phaeacian um, kingdom where the daughter of the king of the Phaeacians, Nausicaa, finds him um, <coughs> and falls in love with him as um, Athena wanted her to. Um, so, again, you know, Byron is wanting this to, as it were, rhyme with famous episodes, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, the Odyssey. Um, he wants Juin's experiences to be able to go there. Now, Juin is, <coughs> we talked about this also on Tuesday, Juin is really um, not a very active figure. He's active when he needs to be. For example, he, um, he's the one who holds the gun and prevents the sailors from getting the rum during the shipwreck. So he's active when he needs to be, but he's mainly someone who people fall in love with and um, want things from. And that also makes him a wonderful figure to hang a narrative on, because he's not a person who, who has an objective or a goal and therefore he doesn't have a through line. And he can go anywhere because there's no particular place that he wants to go. Um, he can meet anyone and have sex with anyone, as you'll see, because whoever wants to have sex with him, he basically will have sex with them. Um, he, um, and this will lead him upon many, many adventures. And that's the whole point, that all these adventures just allow Byron to write about whatever it is that he wants to write about. <coughs> so here he wants Juin on an isle of the Cyclades. Um, Hades' father is a pirate, and um, do you know what he makes most of his money in? Yeah. Slaving. In slave trade, in the slave trade. Um, so he's really pretty horrible um, in Byron's eyes. Um, he's going to return in the next canto. So things look pretty nice at the end of canto two. Needless to say, they don't stay that way. Um, but yeah, he's really, um, he's evil, and the reason Heidi and um, um, her maid keep Juin safe is because otherwise he too will be sold into slavery. Um, that's part of the point. Um, so then, the question about Juin forgetting Julia. Were you guys outraged that he forgot her? You kind of expected that he would forget her. Yeah. Um, yeah, Barbara. Um, it looked like you weren't going to say something. Oh, oh, I was just thinking. Okay. I mean, not really. Yeah, I, I think not really because we've kind of forgotten her, and he's the one. He, Byron, is the one who reminds us of her um, and says, you know, well, what about Julia? Um and then he has a long um, <coughs> um, I'm trying to think where he brings her up again um, oh. 
I feel like because he's the person that people fall in love with, rather than seeking that, it, you're less outraged because if he was, if he had actively seduced her and then just uh, cast her aside, but rather it's more like <coughs> he just went along with it and then now he's on to another thing where it's seeking him rather than him actively seeking it out. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it's what happens next. It's, it's um, here he is, he's completely helpless and alone. Um, both Haiti and Julia are older than him. Haiti is much closer to his age, but in both cases, um, these, are, these are women who are older than him, um, who are interested in him, and he's got a kind of, he's not innocent. Haiti is innocent. There's a line which says um, the two of them were in love and one was innocent, and that's Haiti. Um, but Haiti also doesn't have any, doesn't even have the idea of jealousy. Um, that is, for her, it's um, that Jewin should be interested in someone else is of no meaning to her. Um, for her, it's love is pure friendship, or friendship is pure love. Um, so, I'm just trying to look for the the. Um, Yeah, okay. Oh, right, 208. Let's start there. Um, Canto 2, stanza 208. So here's the question. But Juin, had he quite forgotten Julia? And should he have forgotten her so soon? So how many of you suddenly remember Julia at that moment? Yeah, so we kind of forget her too. I think that's actually really important that we forget her. Um, important not in the sense of, oh, look how tricky this is and how... Um, shallow we are compared to the depth of Byron, not at all. Um, I think it's important because it tells us, again, something about the form of a poem like Don Juan, <coughs> which is that Juan, in a way, is a person with no history. The reason the poem is so flexible, the reason it can go anywhere, is that Juan is sort of like the narrator of the poem which is someone who is always fresh and new <coughs> in every story. So here he is, terrible things have happened to him, but he recovers really, really fast. Um, you know, he eats, he has some eggs, he has some coffee, um, Haiti teaches him some Greek, and he's, he spends no time thinking of Pedrillo or the Spaniel or all the death that he's seen. You know, in any kind of realistic story, um, you know, imagine that the, this was done as a 20th century novel. It would be about the extremely long attempt to get Juan to recover from this unbearable trauma that he'd experienced. And um, Haiti would be showing him love, and Juan would try to love her back, but would find that he had no sexual desire or whatever. I mean, you can imagine what kind of psychological novel could be written about this. So this is the opposite of that. Juan has no psychology. He's pure surface, and that's great. And the narrator also has no psychology. He's pure surface, and that's great. And that's why they, that's what I mean by saying they have no history. It's um, the fact that Juan is the son of Donna Inez, the fact that his first sexual experience was with Julia, the fact that he's been in the shipwreck and so on, 
all of that is not a fact that we pay any attention to as we get as we go from incident to incident. Now Byron is perfectly happy to go back to Julia for a minute, um, but that's because he can then start talking about what love is like, and to essentially to say love is an experience without history. That's what makes love love, is the freshness of it, um, the non historical nature of it. So um, we'll look at, in a minute, we'll look at the end of, of Canto One again. But here we are. But Juan, had he quite forgotten Julia? And should he have forgotten her so soon? I can't but say it seems to me most truly a perplexing question. So what the, what's that like? Did that rhyme, Trulia? <clears throat> Yeah, well, it's more like Toriat last. That is, Byron, at one point, the rhyming word is the at the end of a line. Did anyone notice that? Yeah, there's, there's one place. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you can actually um, search for on the internet. Please find me the word the in Don Juan. Um, because you'll get uh, probably a few too many. Examples, but um, I'm sure there are people who rhymed on the word the before Byron, but not very many. Um, <coughs> I'm going to give myself one more second to find it, and then I will email it to you. Um, no, it's in Canto Two. Um, at the beginning of Canto Two, you noticed it. Um, all right, I'll find it for you. Um, because as I say, it's extremely, incredibly unusual to rhyme on the word the, partly because it's usually not a stressed word. Um, but Byron has to stress it in order to rhyme on it. Rhymes always occur on stress. Um, a rhyme has to start on the last stress syllable of a line. Um, if there's an unstressed syllable or two following the stressed syllable, they have to rhyme as well. Um, like intellect, you all, and pecked, you all. Um, but you can't rhyme something like um, little and sable. Um, that doesn't count as a rhyme in English because the lit doesn't rhyme with the sabe, even though they both end with ol. Um, stress really matters. Um, so rhyming on the, on the is a hard thing to do, but okay, I'll send it to you. So anyhow, um, or Julia, Trulia, you need the, you can't rhyme Julia with um, the devil, uh. um, that's just not a rhyme. So, but Julian, had he quite forgotten Julia? And should he have forgotten her so soon? I can't but say it seems to me most truly a perplexing question, but no doubt the moon does these things for us, and whenever newly a strong palpitation rises, tis her boon, Else how the devil is it that fresh features have such a charm for us poor human creatures? So we must change like the moon. When we see fresh features, we fall in love again. And then he says, this is a little bit hard to believe, it being Byron and all, I hate inconstancy. <laughs> I loathe, detest, abhor, condemn, abjure, 
the mortal made of such quicksilver clay that in his breast no permanent foundation can be laid. Love, constant love, has been my constant guest. Okay, good. And yet, last night, being at a masquerade, I saw the prettiest creature fresh from Millen, which gave me some sensations like a villain. So the masquerade is in Venice. Um, that's where the masquerades are. They're, they're like carnival. And here was someone from Millen, and she's very pretty, and he kind of noticed that he was interested in her. But soon philosophy came to my aid and whispered, Think of every sacred tie. I will, my dear philosophy, I said. That, again, is how sad we is <coughs> often pronounced at the time. <coughs> I will, my dear philosophy, I said. But then her teeth, and then, oh, heaven, her eye. I'll just inquire if she be wife or maid, or neither, out of curiosity. Stop, cried philosophy with air so Grecian though she was masked then as a fair Venetian. Stop! So I stopped. But to return. <clears throat> that which men call inconstancy is nothing more than admiration. So I hate inconstancy, but, you know, my interest in every pretty face that I see, it's not inconstancy, which I abhor, loathe, detest, condemn, and abjure, as you all know. It's not inconstancy. Men are wrong to call it inconstancy. It's nothing more than admiration due or nature's rich profusion with young beauty covers or some favorite object. So nature likes someone and makes that object very beautiful. And so it's actually love of nature. And as in the niche, a lovely statue we almost adore, this sort of ad adoration of the real is but a heightening of the beau ideal. So if I fall in love with every pretty woman that I see, it's because I'm in love with platonic forms of beauty, not with these particular people. Tis the perception of the beautiful, a fine extension of the faculties, platonic, universal, wonderful, drawn from the stars and filtered through the skies, without which life would be extremely dull. In short, it is the use of our own eyes with one or two small senses added, just a hint that flesh is formed of fiery dust. <coughs> Yet, tis a painful feeling and unwilling for surely, if we always could perceive in the same object, grace is quite as killing as when she rose upon us like an eve, t'would save us many a heartache, many a shilling, for we must get them anyhow, or grieve. Whereas if one soul lady pleased forever, how pleasant for the heart as well as liver. So it would be great if I could love one person forever, but the problem is that beauty is always something fresh. The heart is like the sky, a part of heaven, but changes night and day too, like the sky. Now orid clouds and thunder must be driven, and darkness and destruction as on high. And when it hath been scorched and pierced and riven, its storms expire in water drops. That is, people start weeping when they break up. The eye pours forth at last, the heart's blood turned to tears, which make the English climate of our years. So eventually, as we get older, we're just heartbroken all the time. The liver is the lazard of bile, but very, very rarely executes its function, 
for the first passion stays there such a while that all the rest creep in and form a junction like knots of vipers on a dunghill soil. So what follows love is rage, fear, hate, jealousy, revenge, compunction, so that all mischiefs spring up from this entrail like earthquakes from the hidden fire called central. So he's talking actually about volcanoes. In the meantime, without proceeding, well, now he's going to, he, he just tells us what the next canto is going to be about. Um, all right, so what I think is worth noticing here is that everything he's saying, um, if it's about a real person, um, and to some sense it is, he knows that this is what he's being criticized for, everything that he's saying is appalling in a real person. That is, um, you shouldn't think, well, I got tired of you because you no longer seem beautiful to me or no longer seem fresh to me, and you know, there's this other person who's really beautiful and she's new, so I'm going to go to her. Um, but in a poem, it's what keeps your interest. That is, the story of Jewin just going from adventure to adventure and person to person and relationship to relationship, that's who he is. That's what he is. He's a counter. He's not a real person. What he is is a kind of monopoly piece going from, um, from square to square, from, Haiti, from Julia Avenue to Haiti Avenue to whatever. Um, he goes from place to place, and he's not a real person. And so instead, what he is is someone who's keeping the poem going. He's the poem, he's the, he's the thread on which the poem goes, and, where the po and the poem goes anywhere that, that Byron wants it to go. Um, and because there's no depth and no history, what we can do is just feel the presence of what's going on in the poem at any present moment. Um, just enjoy or be amazed by or be appalled by or whatever it is that Byron is saying, but just experience the poem in the present. And if you want Jewin to have a history, what histories do to works of literature is they slow them down. What happens is deep characters, characters of real psychological presence and power, Shakespearean characters, let's say, or Joycean characters, um, characters who lead real lives, as they proceed through narratives, everything that happens to them is something that they have to bring along with them. They bring their own history with them, the history that the story has told you. They bring that history with them. And that means, in a sense, that you have to remember all of that history, and the writer has to remember all of that history, and they have to carry all of that history with them as they go through a story. And that slowly but surely, inevitably, inexorably slows the story down, means that possibilities start disappearing. Things that a character could do at the start of a story, they can no longer do halfway through or three quarters of the way through. Hamlet can't marry Ophelia after he talks to the ghost. And he certainly can't marry Ophelia after he kills her father. So in narratives where characters have histories, the Iliad and the Odyssey to begin with, 
as the narrative proceeds, the space of, po of narrative possibility narrows for the main character. And that's what Byron is avoiding. And the way he's avoiding it is by having Don Juan just be this figure who is only there, as he says at the beginning of Canto, at, in, 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 at the beginning of Canto One, is only there for the rhymes. That is, remember, he gives a list of possible heroes for um, the epic that he wants to write um, at the very beginning. Um, stanza three of Canto One. Um, well, he begins, I want a hero, an uncommon want, when every year and month sends forth a new one. But he finally decides, I'll take our ancient friend, Don Juan. Um, <coughs> And then stanzas two and three, he talks about other possible people he could have written about. Vernon, the Butcher Cumberland, Wolf, Hawk, Prince Ferdinand, Granby, Burgoyne, or Burgoyne, Keppel, Howe, Evelyn Good have had their tithe of talk and fill their signposts then like Wellesley now. Each in their turn like Banquo's monarchs, stalk, followers of fame, nine pharaoh of that sow. France too had Bonaparte and Du Maurier recorded in the Monitor and Courier. Barnave, Brissot, Condorcet, Mirabeau, Pétion, Clutes, Danton, Marat, Lafayette, you know who Lafayette is, even if you don't know who the others are, were French, and famous people as we know, and there were others scarce forgotten yet, Joubert, Hoche, Marceau, Lannes, Desay, Moreau, with many of the military set, exceedingly remarkable at times, but not at all adapted to my rhymes. So why does he pick Juin? Well, because Juin rhymes really well. Um, so that's the main thing, is how well he rhymes. Okay, let's go to the end of Canto One, um, where again you can get a sense of Byron's self—amazing, wonderful, lovely self-knowledge here. Um, so he's he tells you that the poem's about to end, but then he goes on for a while. Um, so go to stanza two. Um, <coughs> O2, let's say, of Canto 1. Uh, um, Starting with Canto 200, he starts saying what his poem's going to be. My poem's epic and is meant to be divided in 12 books. In fact, it's way more than 12 books. Each book containing, with love and war, a heavy gale at sea, so we saw that. A list of ships and captains and kings reigning, new characters. The episodes are three. A panoramic view of hells in training after the style of Virgil and of Homer, so that my name of epics, no misnomer. All these things will be specified in time with strict regard to Aristotle's rules, the vade mecum of the true sublime. So Aristotle's rules are the handbook that you should take with you. That's what vade mecum means. It means go with me, and it just means it's something you can take with you um, to, to, um, uh, as a guidebook. Um, so Aristotle's rules are the vade mecum of the true sublime, which makes so many poets and some fools Prose poets like blank verse. Who does he mean? What prose poet? Yeah. Um, no. no, he loves Milton. He's talking about a contemporary blank verse poet who, hint, just published The Excursion. Wordsworth, yes. Prose poets like blank verse. So he's basically saying it's, it's not poetry, it's prose. I'm fond of rhyme. Good workmen never quarrel with their tools. I've got new mythological machinery and very handsome supernatural scenery. There's only one slight difference. 
between me and my epic brethren gone before, and here the advantage is my own, I ween. Not that I have not several merits more, but this will more peculiarly be seen. They so embellish that tis quite a bore <coughs> their labyrinth of fables to thread through, whereas this story is actually true. So he's basically saying, um, just read the story for the story. It's not true, but read it for the story. If any person doubted, I appeal to history, tradition, and to facts, to newspapers whose truth all know and feel. We all know that newspapers are true, especially Fox News. To plays in five and operas in three acts. All these confirm my statement a good deal, but that which more completely faith exacts is that myself and several now and several saw so Jewin's last elopement with the devil. And now he tells us his Ten Commandments. So I think these are great. If ever I should condescend to prose, I'll write poetical commandments, which shall supersede beyond all doubt all those that went before. In these I shall enrich my text with many things that no one knows and carry precept to the highest pitch. I'll call the work Longinus or a Bottle. So anyone know who Longinus is? Longinus, along with Aristotle and Horace, was one of the three great classical critics. And Longinus was famous for his work called On the Sublime. And it's where the idea of the sublime comes from. On the sublime, periupsos, on height. So he's going to call his work Longinus or a Bottle. Longinus when you're drunk. Or every poet his own Aristotle. And here are the commandments. Thou shalt believe in Milton, Dryden, Pope. So what's the first commandment, or possibly the second, depending on how you count in the Ten Commandments? Yeah, and thou shalt have no other gods before me. Um, so I have the Lord thy God, um, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But here, thou shalt believe in Milton, Dryden, Pope. Thou shalt not set up Wordsworth, Coleridge, Southey. So what are you not supposed to set up? Yeah, False idols. False idols, good. Because the first is crazed beyond all hope, the second drunk, the third so quaint and mouthy. With Crab it may be difficult to cope, another poet, and Campbell's Hippocrene is somewhat drowthy. Um, it's supposed to be this wonderful nectar of the gods, but it's kind of dry mouth. Thou shalt not steal from Samuel Rogers, nor commit flirtation with the muse of Moore. Why the dash between commit and flirtation? Because he's interrupting what he's about to say. So what word, according to Ten Commandments, what aren't you supposed to do? Commit what? Adultery. But he quickly changes that to flirtation. Notice his dashes. They're always, um, or frequently there, as he doesn't say what it is that he's about to say. Um, what you will see... Um, as you continue reading, is there's a character who gets very angry at Juan because of what he does to her, which is that he deserts her. And the line goes, her first thought was to cut off Juan's head, her second to cut merely his acquaintance. So her first thought is she'll cut his head. Her second thought is, well, not, she's not going to cut off his head. She's going to cut off his some other part. Mm -hmm. But then... Quickly, the narrator changes that. She'll cut him in the street. She'll cut merely his acquaintance. Um, so always notice where this is going, where he quickly changes what, what it is he's going to say. Um, all right. Um, Canto 3 is shorter. Uh, Canto 2 was slightly shorter. 
Um, Canto three is only 111 stanzas, so um, have fun with it. And I will see you Thursday. Do you know what the first, anyone notice the first words of Canto three? Remember how he says um, he's not going to bore you? Look at the first words of Canto three. I'll just read them to you. Ready? Hail, muse, etc. <laughs> All right, see you guys Thursday. For, oh, for, yeah. I still.